This podcast is brought to you from Grantwood AEA, an educational service agency that supports school districts in eastern Iowa with a focus on equity, excellence, and efficiency in education for all children. Welcome to episode 63 of the EdTech Takeout, the podcast that serves up bite-sized technology tips for teachers. My name is Jonathan Wiley, and I'm actually really excited about today's episode. <laughs> Joining me today are two of my favorite people, Mindy Carney and Gina Rogers. I know we have Gina with us today. Yay. Yay. Thanks for coming on. So um, this is kind of an exciting episode mm-hmm. because... Um, Drum roll. Yeah, mm-hmm. drum roll, right? Uh, Dr. John Hattie is going to come on with uh, the podcast with us and talk a little bit about his work and his upcoming appearance at Grantwood AA in October. So um, Gina and I just recently, probably in the last six months or so, have been doing a lot of work with Hattie's highly effective instructional strategies. And we've actually mentioned it on the show previously, but we're going to kind of talk a little bit about some of the work that we've done before um, the main meat of the show. Mm-hmm. So for those that are maybe not familiar or as familiar with the work of Professor Hattie, would one of you like to give us just an overview, a brief explanation of, of what he's done? So his work um, in visible learning is a meta-analysis, or actually it's a synthesis of 1,400 meta-analyses, which include 80,000 studies um, that touch, I believe, 300 million students that were involved in those, um, all those studies. And so that's a rather large um, sample population that is, um, and the work is dedicated to looking at what um, is effective in education or what sort of things um, impact student learning. And so those things can range from uh, effects that teachers have a lot of control over, and so things that happen in the classroom that they control, instructional strategies, practices, things of that nature, and things that teachers have absolutely no control over. So for example, um, premature birth weight or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> And I know that, uh, Gina, you and Mindy have been uh, doing some work around pairing up technology tools with uh, some of those strategies and helping teachers work on those. So would either of you guys like to talk to that? I know we've had some blog posts sure. and things we've discussed in the past. But. Yeah. So when Gina and I first started kind of looking into this, it was through blended learning at the time. And I um, think... The, the first thing that really struck us struck us is that as we were kind of learning and uh, discussing some of these instructional strategies about how we didn't have the same definition of those instructional strategies to begin with. So there was a lot of com- um, communication between the two of us and conversations around what does this instructional strategy mean? And then looking at digital tools. And I think we were very deliberate in the tools that we chose because we really didn't want to just add technology for technology's sake, but we wanted to be very thoughtful of ways that um, allow those instructional strategies to be maybe more accessible to a variety of learners and learning styles um, and make the collaborativeness of some of those instructional strategies um, easier and more accessible to uh, lots of students. So we tried to really look into that and try and find tools that we thought really amplified those instructional strategies instead of, you know, just adding them on as something else to do. 
But I, th- I think our voice always has been too with this work is that we don't, we want to make sure that we still allow students to have the choice. And that's why we, ch- those digital tools might be great for some students, but for some students, they maybe prefer not to use digital tools and that this is just another additional tools that, that tool that they could use, um, but shouldn't be forced to use either. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, kind of where we're at with it. Gina, could you give us an example of something you've been working on, maybe from one of those blog posts or how you paired those tools and the strategies together? Well, I don't know. I guess like one of the things that we really, um, or one of the blog posts that we focused on was the jigsaw method, which actually has a pretty high effect size of like 1.25, I think. Yeah, Um, And, you know, we think that there's several different Google tools that really lend itself well to executing a really well done um, jigsaw. And so creating something like a collaborative slide deck um, where you start with your initial groups, break into those expert groups. And so then those expert groups have their slide that they can um, focus on and put their learning onto and then come back to their initial groups to um, do their further teaching and um, thinking a little bit about that topic as a larger group. And I think the nice thing about some of those Google tools too is that it allows uh, students to share their understanding and their knowledge in a variety of ways. So there's, you know, like with the Google collaborative Google slide deck, it allows students to record video. It allows them to draw. It allows them to, you know, illustrate their thoughts and their thinking. And it's not just, you know, one size fits all for everyone. So they can really have um, a broad choice of how they how they share what they've learned and um share that with their classmates as well. Yeah, plus there's a, a certain degree of simplicity to some of those tools and familiarity of those tools. And so sometimes when you're um, introducing something in class that is novel or new or a strategy that's novel or new for the kids, then that's going to be um, a some, somewhat complex endeavor. So it's either complex because of the content or it's complex because of the strategy that you're introducing not further complicating what's happening in the classroom by introducing a really complex technology tool can mm-hmm. be um, actually quite a benefit. Right. And so something has to give. So making something a little bit um, less complicated. Mm-hmm. And a familiar let, tool, right? A familiar tool mm-hmm. um, to allow the kids to work with. All right. So we've heard a little bit about what you guys have had to say. Let's uh, hear what Dr. Hattie has to say. All right, so we're going to open up our conversation with Dr. Hattie, who is coming to Grantwood AA in October. We're super excited to have you. Um, do you want to tell us just a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your work? Sure. I'm based here at um, the in Melbourne, in Australia, and uh, I've been in the business of academia now for many, many years, and I was trained in my back background is in the measurements and statistics area, but over the years I've had this fascination about why everyone seems to claim they have the answer about what works in, in, in classrooms. And so that led me on a hobby and a journey looking at the different meta-analyses out there. And then when my book was published on visible learning around 2009, it kind of took over my life in many ways. But at the mm-hmm. stage now, I'm starting retirement from the university. Um, I'm into grandfather stage, which keeps me very busy and <laughs> It's an exciting stage, actually. <laughs> and, uh, 
So it's a really good site. And also the, the opportunity to come to places like Cedar Rapids around the world and see in action some of the excellence that we have in our system. Great. So for our listeners who might not be really familiar with visible learning, um, the initial book in, from 2009, could you explain a little bit um, about your research synthesis process and like the importance of the effect size? Yeah, what, what I asked the question, which is asked all over the place, about what works in education. And I thought, well, not everything can work. There must be variability. And so one of the intentions was to change the narrative from what works to what works best. And the way I did that was by connecting lots of meta-analyses, which are syntheses of other people's work. And so I, in a sense, then synthesized those meta-analyses to ask the question, can we come up with a continuum that looks that you could place those different influences on that works out what influences have the biggest effects on the kids, what has the lesser influences, and then the hard part, and the part that took me about 20 years to write the book, was can you understand what the common denominators of those things that really make a difference and those that don't? And I use this thing called effect sizes, which um, is a key part of what a meta-analysis is, which is either the difference between when you introduce something in a classroom compared to when you don't introduce it, or when you introduce something and measure up front, and then you measure five or six months or a year later, and you look at the growth differences. And so looking at those kinds of effects, it allowed me to work out what were the underlying story about what really worked and what was not. So one of those really important factors that you highlight in your book is feedback, right? So can you tell us a little bit about the different types of feedback um, and how do those different types of feedback kind of work together? Yeah, it, it became very clear very soon that feedback was a common denominator of what worked up top. And it ended up that the effect size was very high, around about 0.7, which is double the average. But then I started going into schools and working with teachers and talking about feedback and the question you're asking about the different types of feedback, how you can increase feedback. And it doesn't take long to realize that teachers are already giving lots of feedback. And it was kind of like a bit of a mystery for a while for me to understand um, what was happening. The other problem with feedback is that it's incredibly variable. The same feedback you give one child can work, but it doesn't work when you give it to the next child. You give feedback to you today, it works, tomorrow it doesn't. And what I realized is that just looking at feedback and asking the question you ask about the different types or not taking into account the variability, that's the problem. In fact, a third of feedback that we give kids is negative. A third. Imagine if we could work out the problem of the variability, how that 0.7 effect would dramatically raise. And so that's what set us on a, a, a series of studies trying to understand about that variability. And so people who have said you've got to give descriptive feedback or evaluative feedback, they kind of miss the point because it can work one day and not the other. So we developed a model of feedback, which I'm happy to talk to you about, that tries to explain that variability and reduce that variability so we can maximize the impact of feedback however we give it. Yeah, so talk to us a little bit about that model for feedback to reduce the variability. There's really three big comments and findings. The first is the, the feedback questions. What is feedback the answer to? And it's really about where the student's going, how they're going, and where to next. And they have different effects. When you ask teachers, and we've done this now for many thousands of teachers, 
about their conception of feedback. It very much relates to where am I going and particularly how am I going? We're actually very, very good at that. And that's a great thing. But when you ask students, their focus is almost entirely on give me information, give me feedback that tells me where I go next. And what we found is that if there is nowhere to next feedback, students will argue black and blue, they got no feedback. Mm-hmm. Imagine like when you were going through university and someone gave you a, a half a page set of comments. If there's nowhere to next in that, you will probably put it aside and say that was useless. Now there's nothing wrong with how am I going and where to next feedback. It's the basis of where to next. But that was the first thing, is that unless there's some assistance, some information, some direction about where to go, then feedback is not as effective. The second thing was the levels of feedback. Like feedback has to fit into the instructional cycle. Like when you're learning the facts, the knowledge, the vocabulary, feedback is very much about the task. It's how it's kind of like correct, incorrect. One of the best forms of feedback when you're at that level is reteaching and doing it in a different way. Then when you move up to looking at the processes underlying the task, the different strategies, the error detection, then you, the teacher, working with the students to help them see where their errors are, teach them a different way of strategies is very powerful. And the third level is the self-regulation level. This is where you want the students to take more ownership about what is going on here, what the mistakes they're making, can they work it out, are they prepared to try a different strategy? And the importance of that is that if you give feedback at the task level and the students working at the self-regulation level, it has little effect and mm-hmm. vice versa. But then when you go into classrooms, and like we went into this school, I remember this one school, which is a very, very affluent school. Um, across the last 18 years, not a, only one girl in the school, it's an all-girls school, only one girl in the school has not gone on to university. You can imagine the kind of school it is. Mm-hmm. And we did a, a monitoring the kind of feedback that the teachers gave the students. 90% of it was at the task level. And you're going to seriously ask, is that where these students are operating? I don't think so. In fact, we're kind of dumbing the kids down to keep it at that task level. And so that's the second, get the fit right to make sure that it's, it's going to be at least related to where the students are in the cycle and start to increase it. And the third thing, and probably the most profound thing, is that, um, and this was certainly my mistake in this whole area, when we realized that it wasn't the amount or the nature of feedback that we give to students that really matters, it was how it was received. And so we now spend a lot of time saying, how do you understand what I said? What do you understand by what I mean? Write a half a page from the comments I made about where you go next. And it's a really salutary experience to do as a teacher because you realize sometimes the students got nothing from it. And it really is a powerful way to help. And if I was allowed a fourth, so I'll add one more in. (laughs) Feedback is maximized when it's from the student to the teacher. It's much more powerful from the teacher to the student, which is powerful, but even more so is when teachers get feedback about how well they go. And so that are the, those are kind of the three or four things that help explain that variability and help reduce the amount of variance to even maximize the feedback. I'm sorry that took a long answer. Yeah. That was <laughs> no, it's great. Life. So, I mean, what you're describing obviously is um, a very strong culture that is built inside a classroom with, you know, everyone being able to provide feedback. Um, What are you seeing or maybe what recommendations do you have to kind of build that culture amongst teachers and teachers and students and students to teachers? How, How do we build those kinds of relationships with our students? 
First thing is that recognizing that errors and mistakes and not understanding is the essence here, because if you get something right, the feedback is nowhere near as powerful than when you get it wrong. And that directly comes to your question about the culture. If you're in a culture of a classroom where kids are not allowed to make mistakes, where a teacher asks questions, where everyone puts their hand up if they know the right answer, you've got a culture of rightness. You've also got a huge issue with peers, with their colleagues in the classroom. Now, when you put your hand up in class and you got the answer wrong, quite often the biggest impact on the student is their fellow students. There goes old dummy again. He's interrupting the teacher's flow. And so that, when it comes back to a culture where errors should be seen as opportunities to learn. So if I came into your class, I'd ask your students, what do you do if you don't know? And if they say they put their hand up, I know we've got a bit of a problem because most kids don't. And then I watch them to see if they actually do put their hand up. And most students don't. I want to know what it means to be a learner. What happens when you don't know? And that tells me more about the culture than anything else. And that culture of seeing errors as opportunities to learn. Like when a teacher says, oh, he didn't understand that. Let us work out what the misunderstanding was or where it goes. Now, how you do that without affecting the self-esteem of the students is absolutely critical. And so we have to, and that comes back to your question of culture. And that means building respect. It means building tolerance. It means showing the students that you're empathetic and understand how they think, uh, where they're going, checking on that with the students so you don't just assume that what you think is happening is happening, allowing students to talk and reducing the amount of teacher talk. And those are the key parts, understanding what this child brings to the classroom in terms of their backgrounds, their, their motivations, their dispositions. Those are the respect things that help students understand in this class it's okay to say, help, help me understand where I'm going, help me understand what I don't know. Absolutely critical. If we're going to shift gears to the um, mind frames now, right. so the 10 mind frames uh, for visible learning. And so what made you choose to focus on mind frames in the 10 mind frames for visible learning? And what are the implications of mind frames in an educational setting? One of the things I discovered from the synthesis work is it's not so much what teachers do. And that is a really big issue because when I look at the majority of professional learning, when I look and listen into teachers when they describe videos of what's happening in their classroom, it's all about what they did. And even further than that, when you ask students about what what's happening in their classroom, they talk about what they do, not what they learn. But let me come back to teachers. And then what happened is some of the people took my work and looked at the list of influences and took the stuff at the top and said, tick, 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 we're doing this. At the bottom, we're not doing that. And that wasn't my story. That wasn't the message. And then I went and saw schools introducing professional learning around my work, and they were saying, oh, like something like reciprocal teaching. That's way high. That's what we're going to do. And that's not my message. And you could, you, both of you could introduce reciprocal teaching into your classroom and in one case, it might work. And in one case, it might not work. And so getting back to that core idea about what it is that makes the difference, it's how teachers think. It is that incredible evaluative thinking that teachers have in a moment-by-moment -moment basis that makes them decide to do this rather than that. And that is the essence of the expertise that I think is stunning amongst our profession. That's what we have to package. That's what we have to 
wrap up in gift paper and that's what we have to scream from the rooftops that we have incredible expertise and we have lots of it but coming back it was how do i get across this message this value to thinking and that's what led to the mind frames trying to say it's these ways of thinking about what we do that make the difference and so that's where that i think it's the core notion underlying what the expertise of teachers are are those value to thinking notions and the way we've done it as you said up to this moment is to look at the major ways of thinking, the mind frames about teaching. That kind of leads us to our next question, I think, with collective efficacy, because with collective efficacy, it's about believing in what we can do and what we can do for our students. So what can leaders or administrators do to kind of develop this climate and culture um, within their students so, or with, with their teachers so that they feel like they can overcome barriers? Let me go back a sec. You talked about the efficacy. Right. But it's the collective efficacy. It's the belief that everyone in the school together can do this. And that's where the power of the principal becomes incredibly powerful. And that efficacy relates to the fact that this notion that I, the teacher, are causing the learning. It's us that make the difference. And my argument is we have much evidence that we're very good at doing that. Whereas quite often teachers will say, no, the kids are from poverty. The kids can't do these things. We have curriculum we have to get through. We've got to do these assessments. As opposed to I cause the learning. It's about high expectations. It's the fact that you have a teacher that has a very low expectations of what a year's growth for a year's input means, and down the corridor you've got a teacher with a very large expectations. Well, they will both have reasonable success in their classrooms, and that's a real problem for those kids who are in the class with the low expectation teachers. And it's having discussions about those things collectively. Are you prepared in your professional learning to bring along a piece of students work three or six months apart and have a discussion about six months growth. Now, you can imagine if I ask you to do that tomorrow, it's a pretty challenging task. It goes to the core of your belief system. And this is where principals, school leaders, have to build that trust. There cannot be a whiff of accountability. They have to build the same kind of climate we were talking about in classrooms before in the staff room. And that is incredible power. My worry with collective efficacy is that it's becoming quite popular around the um, school system, but too often it's about the wrong stuff. It's collective efficacy about timetables, about curriculum, about assessment. It's not curriculum efficacy about the impact. And so when you do that, it's quadruple the rate of learning. And I don't want to see it as a thing separate to itself. It underlies all the core notions that we were talking about before, about having teachers articulate how they think and building that evaluative thinking up. It's a very, very powerful notion. Okay, we're going to pivot a little bit to classrooms, and um, but within mind frames. And when Mindy and I were reading the mind frames book, we found um, your further explanation of time on task to be really intriguing. We were just intrigued by that because we have a lot of conversations around the difference between strategic compliance and active engagements in the classroom. And so as a teacher, how can we design learning to yield more active engagement in the learning task versus just strategic compliance? Yeah, and it's not just compliance. It's it's that (laughs) notion of busy work. And that's where, as you saw, I want to reframe the narrative about what we do to how we learn. And one of the things that surprised us when we look at um, transcripts of classes is that there is, like, we have at the moment um, uh, an app that we use to 
get a transcript of what happens in classrooms. And we have about 15 to 20,000 uh, transcripts. And when I read through those to find examples of when teachers teach students how to think different strategies, after about 3,000 hours, we gave up because we couldn't find one. Hmm. And so what we would like to see happen relating to what you, the question you asked me is, how can we get teachers to listen and make the learning more visible from the student? And there's kind of an irony here because, you know, of course, visible learning. Learning isn't really visible. It's in the brain. You can't see it. It's in the heart in terms of the emotions. You can often see that. And so what I want to do is to make that, that learning more visible. And this is where we have to come up with, I would argue, appropriately increasing inappropriate challenges. And this is why we spend a lot of time on diagnosing where the student is at, setting the success criteria and sharing that with the student up front so they could be complicit and working with us to try and reduce, reduce the gap between where they are and where they want to be. Now, the art is then making those success criteria appropriately challenging. And like most students, particularly after the age of eight or nine, want to be challenged. Before then, you're right, they can be quite compliant. And how do we appropriately challenge them? Not set the success criteria too hard that you'd say, oh, what's the point of investing? or making it too easy. Um, so how do you get that challenge right? And how do you get the students then looking at their personal bests, being involved in their own interpretation of the, their assessments so that it can help them understand how they're going and where they're going? And so that's really where we want to turn the discussion. Now, here's the hard thing. Let me ask you this question. How do you learn? I learn by talking <laughs> a lot. I'm a verbal processor. <laughs> <laughs> So I do a lot of talking, a lot of verbal processing in order to um, think through things and like bounce ideas around in my brain and like sift through that and decide what works or what might work or what wouldn't work and discard things. And so I have to do that verbally. Admitly? Um, I do mine all visually, so I have to write it down and I have to be alone. I can't like immediately brainstorm with people. I have to think through things and process it on my own before I can go with Gina and talk it out. So I have to get ahead of her and know what I what my ideas are before we do any verbal processing. We only met this morning. Yeah. And I obviously don't know about you, but I can make a very safe bet that you're wrong. Oh. Oh. Really? Because <laughs> you wouldn't be in this room if that's all you did. Yes, you might start verbally or visually, but what happens when it doesn't work? I bet you switch. I bet you're much more conditional on what is in front of you, how you go about that process. And so the point I'm making is that, firstly, even as adults, we struggle to have a real language of learning. We often say what we do first up, but mm -hmm. the is what you do when it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And I bet you've got multiple strategies. Now, same with students. They learn something. They have a strategy of learning. If it doesn't work, unfortunately, very often, they keep using that strategy mm. and it still doesn't work. And our job is to teach them other strategies. Now, let me be clear here. I'm not talking about 100 strategies. Two or three is enough. And one of the best predictors of kids' success through school life is that they have two or three strategies if they have something to do when the first one doesn't work. When was the last time you understood how the kid went through their strategies of learning and gave them and taught them a different strategy. And one thing I'm sure you know this, when you talk to students about their strategy, they struggle to articulate what it is they're doing. Mm -hmm. And more mm -hmm. often than not, 
they keep with that same strategy. Like you said, you're a visual learner. We keep doing that. Well, no. Sometimes, and you hinted it at the end there, you have to stop and test your ideas with one of your colleagues and see how they think. How did you go about it? How did you understand this? What was your process of learning? That's what we want to spend and focus a lot more time in our classrooms on to get away from client compliance. Now, you can imagine if you do this, it's a totally different classroom. You're talking about what you don't know. You're talking about how you didn't do it. You're in the pit of learning where it's confusing. And obviously, there is a right time to do that. Obviously, the skills in doing that. But going back to your previous question, oh, wow, that climate becomes absolutely critical. It is so much easier just to be compliant. Now, here's, mm-hmm. the, here's the conspiracy. When we ask students, as we have done, what is it they want to happen in classrooms, kids above the average want more teacher talk, want more compliance, <laughs> want mm-hmm. more doing, and want more facts because they know how to play that game. Yep. It's the kids below average who want you to shut up and listen to them, who want to view to help teach them alternative strategies that want to go to the deeper understanding more quickly to build the ideas between the facts. And so we have a bit of a conspiracy out there, which kind of explains why 90 plus percent of what we do in classrooms is about the facts. But I'm miles off your topic here. Let me come back. (laughs) (laughs) Looking at this notion of learning, this challenge, this not knowing, it dramatically changes the nature of classrooms. It gets away from the compliance mode, but there's conspiracies against it. So I think, um, you know, you're talking a lot about what you were talking about, what students want in the classroom. So what role then do assignments or homework, things like that, play in assessment so we know what students know? And students know what they know, right? So when you ask students, um, again, we've done a lot of this about what it means to be a learner in this classroom and what is it valued in this classroom. It isn't what the teacher says. It's not necessarily what the teacher does. It's what is valued in the activities we're asked to do. Whether the activities are homework, assessment, or just any other activities, that's what they see as valued. And when you analyze the cognitive demands and the activities in terms of what the students do and what the teachers value, unfortunately, it's about knowing lots. When I say unfortunately, there's nothing wrong with knowing lots, but that's where it stops. And again, when you ask students who's a great learner in this classroom, it's the kid who knows lots. Um, it's the it's the series and Googles of the classroom are the ones that are seen most successful. <laughs> What's mirrored in the tasks? And so we're spending a lot of time at the moment, and we're still doing this research work, so we're not there yet, trying to find ways to analyze the cognitive demands of tasks and use that in the lesson planning. Now, we haven't got there because it's, it's too complicated at the moment. The language is not pleasant, and so we're not right there at the moment. But what are the cognitive tasks? How do we create tasks that have Yes, they do have knowing stuff, building up the subject matter vocabulary, and also looking at how you relate those things and how you transfer them to new tasks. And it's and I know teachers have been doing that for 100 years in the sense of looking at those three elements, the surface, the deep, and the transfer. But how do you look at it so that you can mirror and model the thinking behind it? And so that's what we're spending a lot of time at the moment because we're trying to change how teachers, sorry, how students see what is valuable in terms of what they do. So it comes to your question about homework. If it's about those things, absolutely it's powerful. But most homework isn't. And most tasks are not. They're just about the facts. It's just about doing the same, doing, doing, doing. And many students, for instance, will do their 10 questions and homework. And if they've finished 10 questions, they've done the homework, as opposed to 
do they understand? Have they got it right? Do they understand right from wrong, et cetera, which is much harder and much harder to do at home by yourself. I was going to ask you to talk about the solo taxonomy like next, and then you just started to kind of go into the surface deep transfer. Surface deep and transfer. That sort of is something we've been working on for probably 30 or 40 years, and it was only in the last sort of 10 years that we realized the dominance of surface in classrooms. That I'm sure you know this too in your country as in my country, the whole discussion about 21st century skills. And hey, we're almost a fifth of the way through, so we better get busy on them. Is <laughs> <laughs> the bipolarity of systems saying we want 21st century skills, employers saying we want 21st century skills. Well, my argument is that's a barren argument. We want both. It is the fact that we kids who do well in our society do know lots about what it is that they're talking about. But also, it's about how they relate and extend those ideas. And so what our argument is, like, if you're learning something for the first time, it's probably okay that 80% of the class is surface. But then after you get more knowledgeable about the content, the vocabulary, the facts, the understanding, that, then you, we'd hope you'd move to the understanding and the deep. The other side of it is in the visible learning work, some of the influences like discovery teaching, inquiry teaching, problem-based teaching are way down the bottom. And that kind of doesn't make sense. So I've spent a lot of time looking at those and trying to understand why they're so low. And it turns out the answer's simple. We introduce them too often before the students have the content of the knowledge. And those people in the problem-based learning are often religious messiahs who come in and say, we must do problem-based learning. And they don't ask, when's the right time? And there is a when question. And like when we ask the question ourselves in our research, where's the research on when is the right time to shift from surface to deep? We can't find anyone who's ever asked that question. Now, I'm not sure there's an exact time, but there must be a moment where you say, let's stop giving the students more facts and let's go into problem-based learning. And so there is a time. And that's why when you look at the different strategies and you look at the timing, we call our model the Kenny Rogers model because you've got to know <laughs> when to hold them and when to play them. And that's a real skill that many teachers do. So that surface deep and transfer is pretty critical to understand. So I'm going to take a little bit of what you said and turn it into a, a different question with 21st century skills. Um, if we take the technology part of 21st century skills, right, where do you see technology having the most impact on student learning? There's been about 150 meta-analyses on technology since um, the 1970s, and they've all come out with a similar low effect size despite the fact that the nature of technology has changed dramatically in, my, in our lifetimes. And so when I hear people say, oh, the future of technology, big data, all this thing coming ahead, it's going to be dramatic. We've said that for 50 years and it hasn't had the impact. And so again, asking the question, accepting the answer, it hasn't had a large impact, and then trying to understand why it hasn't. And most of the reason is that it hasn't, is that we've introduced technology to do what we're already doing in the classroom. We use it for fact-checking. We use it for encyclopedias. We don't do paper mache anymore. We do videos. And, so we, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's much more efficient in many ways. The biggest impact that we're seeing of technology is, in fact, what you said before, the social media side of it. Like, go back to feedback. I remember standing with one of my PhD students in this class as she was doing her work and trying to get kids to ask questions about what they didn't know. And it was, it's really tough. It's, you know, these were young adolescents, 
they had learnt classrooms. They had learnt it's easier to put, not put your hand up, look like you know, even when you don't know. And I remember this 14-year-old boy, and she was talking to him. The, te- the teacher was talking to her, this boy and saying, well, yeah, what is it you know and you don't know? And he was on his um, kind of like Facebook. It wasn't Facebook, but it's Edmodo. It's, a, it's an app that's kind of like that. And whilst he was talking to the teacher and saying, no, no, I understand. No, it's not a problem. He was actually typing questions to the teacher about what he didn't know. And then we realized we're onto something. And so we've got a lot of this app work now where we ask students to ask each other students about what they know and don't know in social media and ask the teacher. And it's dramatic. But they won't do it verbally. And so we see this working in groups, communicating in the same way with teachers. Like I'm the chair of an organization here in Australia um, that has a, a, a that's owned by the Australian government that looks at how we get improve the quality of teachers, school leaders, and teacher education. And one of the things we've done in the organization is created a social media platforms and apps. We get one point uh, one and a half million teachers come to our site each month. We created an app, for example, where like we have a problem in Australia with induction. When students, teachers go into brand new schools, they're supposed to have induction. 95% of our principals claim they have excellence induction, of which less than 40% of the new teachers know about it. Improving that, <laughs> So we created an app so that a new teacher can go on, ask a question, ask for resources, ask for anything. By the afternoon, 10 to 12 highly accomplished lead teachers have answered them. We get 20,000 hits a month to that. The incredible amount of social media. Teachers are huge users of social media. I can run a, a Twitter feed, a session on a Tuesday night uh, at 7.30. And I did that last year and I had um, we reached to 23,000 teachers in an hour. Wow. Teachers are big users of social. And my point is that social media side of the web is dramatically underestimated. Now, of course, we have to get it right because there's kind of bad sides to it too with the bullying and all those things. But we have to also work how to get it right. I am very optimistic that that is the, the breakthrough in the use of the technology to help students understand what they don't know, to get them in a shared community. And the beauty of that is you're not excluding the teacher. They can see it and they have to see it. Well, I think those are all the questions that we had for you for um, today. What an honor to speak to you. I really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us and um, answer our questions. And it was very insightful. And I really appreciate that um, you've made this effort to call because you can see I love talking about this and I am very much looking forward to coming back to Iowa and coming up to Cedar Rapids and meeting with you. All right, so uh, that was a great conversation. Uh, Dr. John Hattie is coming to Cedar Rapids with Peter DeWitt on October 16th, 2019. And you can come and see him if you register soon. Soon, well, yeah. It has to be soon because mm-hmm. this will fill fast. Yeah. Uh, Mindy, Gina, and I are all going to be there. So we will put uh, a link for registration if you want to see Dr. Hattie or you just want to come and see us. We'll be there in October <laughs> in Cedar Rapids. And this is our last episode before summer break. So have a great summer, everyone. We'll see you back in August. Yeah, it's going to be um, a slightly earlier finish to the season than normally. I know you love it when I talk about seasons yeah, for, for the yeah, podcast. No, yeah, yeah we've sure. had that conversation mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. But uh, Mindy and I will be back. Let's say, let's say we'll be back in August, Mindy. How about that? Okay. Yeah. Probably more like September, right? 
August, September. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. I am at Team Carmi on Twitter, and Jonathan is at Jonathan Wiley. Our team account is at DLGWAA, and you can use our hashtag EdTechTakeout to take the show. If you prefer, you can send us an email to podcast at GWAA.org. So until we come back after the summer. This has been the EdTechTakeout. We hope it hit the spot. For more information on today's episode, please visit DLGWAA.org slash podcast.